You are listening to True Crime Twins, a true crime podcast hosted by Chloe and Melina Cantor. True Crime Twins is produced by Crawlspace Media. Welcome back to True Crime Twins. I'm Chloe. And I'm Melina. Thanks for listening. Today, we are covering an unsolved disappearance, that of Kyron Horman. Kyron was seven when he disappeared on June 4th, 2010. He had brown hair and blue eyes and was Caucasian. He would be 16 today. His parents are Desiree and Kane Horman, and they were divorced a month before Kyron's birth, but both were active in Kyron's early childhood. But as of 2004, which was six years prior to the disappearance, his mother had lost custody of him. For some reason, they attribute it to health issues, possibly kidney failure. So the woman that was more involved in Chiron's life for most of it was his stepmother, Terry, who his father married in 2007. And then Terry and Chiron's father had a child of their own. So that would be Chiron's half-sister. Now, once Chiron went missing, his mother, whose name is Desiree Young, she um, has you know been very active in getting media attention. She's always you know the face of the press conferences. She put up billboards. But it just seems like at the, that time, she was unable for whatever reason to um, care for Kyron. So we're not judging her at all. <laughs> of course not. Yeah. So the case takes place in Portland, Oregon. He was last seen at his elementary school. His stepmom, Terry, took him to school that morning for some science fair. And she took a photo of him in front of his poster, which was about tree frogs. She says that she left the school at around 8.45 and she last saw him walking towards his first class. But according to the attendance for that day, he was never there. And the school didn't have surveillance footage, right? So there's really no way to confirm where he was last seen in the school. The only evidence that he was really at school was the picture that she took of him. And then I think there were some witness accounts, like other kids and parents saw him that morning probably at the science fair. But I don't know if there are any witness statements showing him anywhere else in that school that day. Right. Nobody saw him in his first class and nobody saw him leave the school, which is pretty odd. So after this, Terry leaves the school and runs several errands. She goes to two different Fred Meyer locations. Her explanation for that is she was looking for medication for her baby daughter's ear infection. She was advised by the pediatrician the day before to get this medicine she goes to one location. They don't have it. She goes to the next. They have it. Or it, there might have even been a third location. But that rung odd uh, to some people right away that she was going to multiple locations of the same store. That was her explanation. So I, that was from 845 to 1010? Yes. And then after that, until 1139, Terry said that she was driving her baby around to soothe an earache. Right. The motion of the vehicle to try to get the baby to calm down, maybe take a nap. And then from 11.39 to 12.40, Terry said that she was at the gym and that she would be home by 1.21. And I'm interested about where this gym was because was it more than 40 minutes away? That's kind of like a big gap of time. And where did she she take the baby with her to the gym? You know, she was saying she had a fussy baby. You know, either the father was home or they had other kind of child care. It's a little bit confusing. Yeah, no, I'm just curious about that. One of the locations she, I think this meeting was in between 9.30 and 10, she ran into someone that works for her gym 
and they stopped to talk. Both women confirmed this meeting happened, and she actually showed this woman the now infamous picture of Kyron Horman, the last picture of him smiling at the science fair. And when she got home around 1.30, she actually posted the photo on Facebook. I don't think this was uncommon behavior for her either. Um, people say that she would frequently send emails with lots of pictures of her children. So Chiron was supposed to come home that day off of the bus at 3.30, and he did not show. So Terry called the school to ask where he was, and then that was when she was informed that he was marked absent for the whole day. And then shortly after, he was reported missing to the police. So, you know, first impressions is that um, there's a lot that really can't be confirmed by anyone except for Terry. And I think when we're looking at the legitimacy of Terry's account, whether or not we can depend on what she says, whether or not she's reliable, we need to sort of see how she acted after Kyron went missing. There was some odd behavior there. And not only her, but the rest of his family were considered suspicious at the beginning of the investigation because they declined media interviews. Do you think that that's suspicious? All of his family declined media interviews? At first. I mean, I don't think that's strange. I think at first, people don't really know how to handle this. Not everyone's into true crime. And I think once you've experienced being the family member of a missing person or murdered person, you come to learn that media attention is probably the most important thing, having that interest, having that pressure. But I think at first, when you know nothing about this and you have been a private person your entire life, I don't think it's strange to at first reject it when you don't understand how it could actually serve you. You just feel like it's an invasion of privacy. And maybe, I don't know, that's just my opinion. Do you think it's strange? I don't think it is either, but I can definitely understand how it might look to people, especially because they're like, why don't they want to help? But maybe, you know, some people don't want to be scrutinized by these people who are already judging them for not already talking. You know what I mean? They didn't even do anything yet. Well, if they don't think it's doing anything to serve them, then I can totally understand. But it it can only do good things unless you're guilty. You know, we can see guilty people talking their way. I, I don't know, like the Chris Watts interview, for instance, everyone that watched that for the first time. And we're talking about the family annihilator in Colorado who killed his wife and children once he was interviewed by the media on his front porch, most people that watched that could tell that he was um, using a lot of deception and he ended up being convicted um, after many, many stories that were proven um, deceptive. Yeah, that's another disturbing case. But anywho, about the silence with the media, that kind of turned out to be the least of the suspicious things about this case because not too long after Chiron was reported missing, this really awful scheme came out that terry had allegedly tried to hire the landscaper to kill her husband chiron's father and no charges actually came because they thought there was possible coercion by the police to the landscaper which is the witness but kane promptly divorced her and got a restraining order so that's very odd that raises a lot of red flags i wonder if the landscaper testified under oath or was willing to testify under oath because obviously if there were no charges and there would be no subsequent trial where you would be testifying. But I wonder if he was willing to make any kind of sworn statement. But if they found that he was coerced, then maybe we can't take it seriously at all. People act like that's fact and like that's truth. But if they couldn't move forward, and I mean, that's just a standard in the criminal justice system. It's not truth or falsehood, but I I don't know. Or maybe it was true and the police just messed up and then ruined it for themselves. Right. So I don't feel comfortable saying whether 
or it's not true. happen. But the fact that they couldn't move forward with charges, I feel like, does take away some um, reliability from the story. But the fact that Kane, like, I think that he took that threat pretty seriously. Cause he, well, clearly, yeah. His reaction was very strong. Yeah. And she also failed two polygraph tests. What do you think about polygraph tests? Are they reliable? Well, that's another thing, another um, difference between what we consider true and what is a standard in a court of law. So speaking from the court standards, it's inadmissible in court. They don't believe that it is reliable. But anecdotally, I think that the only evidence that it is reliable is anecdotal. So I don't really rely on it. But I do think that when someone repeatedly fails it, I think it, I think it, is intriguing but not enough to actually say oh she's lying right and maybe you know being willing to take a polygraph test doesn't always mean that the person is like so sure that they're telling the truth they just might be confident in their abilities or may not even be able to admit it to themselves what they've done yeah if i hear that someone has passed a polygraph and i think they're guilty then i will quickly say oh well they just they just tricked the test but there, and there's also a lot of reasons to fail a polygraph um, that don't mean that you're lying, whether it's your medication or other factors. So it's kind of depending on my opinion <laughs> on the person's guilt, whether or not I find polygraphs reliable or not in that moment, which is not the most logical way of thinking. But when we're reflecting on that, that's actually the truth. So true. Um, so that means, no, we can't count on it being reliable if that's what I do with it. So but that is true. And then there was another thing. She started sexting her husband's like best friend. Yeah, she seems very, very, um, the only word that can really come to my mind right now is just odd and sketchy. I mean, people deal with grief differently, so it's hard to say what's normal and what's not, but I would, I think it's kind of object, objectively odd behavior to engage in a an affair with your husband's best friend while you're actively looking for your stepson in theory. Does that say anything about her reliability and her trustworthiness? I think she's extremely untrustworthy because she's unwilling to do that and violate, you know, someone's trust. And I think it also shows just a lack of focus. You know, you're not only grieving at that point, but you need to be active and directive and strategic. Your kid needs you out there. And instead she's, you know, doing something pretty reprehensible. So, after all of this, so no charges were ever filed against her. She's never really been formally accused by the police of any wrongdoing. She currently lives in California, so she moved out of state, and she goes by Terry Vasquez. Didn't she get arrested for stealing her roommate's gun? I actually did not know that. Can you expand? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure since moving to California, she hasn't been able to stay out of trouble. Uh, there was an arrest regarding, I think, an ongoing dispute with the roommate and one of the accusations was that she stole the roommate's firearm. So it's sort of like, I don't I know that comparing this to OJ Simpson might seem a little far fetched, but I just remember that after he quote unquote got away with what he got away with, that he just could not seem to stay out of trouble. You know, he just kept coming back into the news for these weird ways of getting arrested. Yeah. I think some people, when they're on a certain spectrum and I don't want to throw diagnoses out there, but I think when you're looking at people that are sociopaths, a big characteristic of sociopathy is sort of being on the fringes of society. And the only way that you can sort of come off as normal is what you've been able to pick up and imitate from people that you really, it's difficult to stay out of trouble. It's difficult to hold down a job, to hold down a relationship. You're just on the fringes. And I think that's why we see people 
who are on that spectrum continue to run into trouble because there's also a lot of risk-taking behaviors that come with that. They're very stimulation-seeking because they don't experience the full spectrum of, more, of emotions. So just someone like that, the fact that that kind of personality type was Terry Hormans and she was Kyron Hormans' stepmom and she was the one that was last seen with him who was last responsible for his care. That is all circumstantial evidence, but it's highly suspicious. And unfortunately, I don't think at this point there's really any physical evidence linking Terry Horman to this crime because there's no body. Kyron Horman is still missing. They weren't able to uncover any forensic evidence. So all we really have against her is... Circumstance. It's circumstance. The fact that she was last with him. Probably when you think about victimology, who's most likely to harm a child member of the family. So there's, you know, that going against her. Again, circumstantial. But... There's nothing there's nothing really solid. Right. There were two witnesses that came out later. I don't know if they came out later or if this was just reported in the media later, but two witnesses reported seeing an unknown person sitting in Terry's truck outside of the school while this frame of time of the disappearance was happening. And also a friend of Terry's named Dee Dee apparently abruptly left work on the day of the disappearance, June 4th, 2010. And she reportedly assisted Terry in buying a burner phone. So what is this? This is just one person's account. I mean, because that's obviously very suspicious and damning. But is it a reli- is it from a reliable source? Is it just an unconfirmed account? Yeah, I think that they're definitely unconfirmed. Like you said, there's no surveillance footage that we know of. But it's two witnesses. So I guess that might be... Two witnesses saw that? Two witnesses saw the unknown person in her truck. So I think that's that's some corroboration. Yeah, and I wish that there was some sort of description out there. We don't even know if it's a male or a female or what. Right. But yeah, it kind of seems like that, that Chiron's mother, Desiree, believes that Terry did it. Because she actually went as far as suing her in 2012 for $10 million literally for kidnapping Chiron. Any update on that lawsuit or? Um, it was dropped the next year, but it is said that both parents, both biological parents of Chiron believe that Terry was responsible. Oh yeah. Regardless of the outcome, it certainly shows um, <laughs> what her opinion is about what happened to her son. Yes. And she later, Terry went on Dr. Phil to defend herself and deny responsibility. And then she came up with this bombshell that she saw a man in a white pickup truck acting strangely at a 7-Eleven near the school. So that's another thing that guilty people do. I feel like time goes on and they try to make something up. They feel like they can get away with making up an inconsistent lie. They change their story in hopes of pointing the finger somewhere else. Diverting attention away. not the first time that someone's come up with a new piece of information. Years later. Yeah. I think that's like probably one of the most suspicious things that, she could, that she's done out of everything that we've talked about. Yep. So... I guess that's theory number one. And the biggest theory that most people believe is that Terry harmed Chiron after the science fair or planned for him to be harmed. But what would be her motive? Well, we hear that she potentially wanted to hire someone to kill her husband. But again, that's that there's no charges. uh, No charges came from that. But we're seeing a history of looking for harm towards her family i don't know why it's all it really shows is potential history it doesn't show what the motivation is but what could possibly be a motive for what could she want him gone for either of them maybe she 
was unhappy in her marriage maybe she maybe this is all coming from anger towards kane maybe maybe kane cheated on her and like that's he why did with his other wife right and while she was pregnant sorry <laughs> oh i didn't know that detail yeah. that's so i think that maybe the the motivation that could explain both of those plots is anger towards kane first directly punishing him and then oh here's a better punishment yeah that's harming, ha- um, having harm come by your son I think that that would be a likely motive if that is what happened. We don't know a lot of details of their relationship, though, do we? No. We do know that he has a history of cheating. We also know that she was sexting his friend. So maybe Mutual they're both cheaters. Yeah, maybe they're yeah. both cheaters. Maybe she did that because she felt hurt by his cheating. Maybe she was cheating first. Right. And maybe that wasn't like abnormal behavior. I think when people see a long-term married couple and they see that stability, I feel like the immediate assumption, what the norm is, is, oh... They're not cheating on each other. They're faithful towards each other. But who knows? Maybe that was a long-standing norm within that married relationship that he cheated, that she cheated, and that was something that they did, and it became this toxic pattern to hurt each other. And maybe her sexting his friend actually wasn't a deviation from her normal behavior. Maybe they were just not very nice people. Maybe she just wasn't a nice person. Who knows? But I do think it's kind of just testing what we're assuming here we're assuming that that was the first time but it very well could not it might not have been correct so there are two other theories that people have considered and theory number two that we're going to talk about is Chiron being a victim of a random abduction how possible is that (laughs) well at a, a random abduction at a school without any witnesses is kind of difficult to reconcile when you think about all of the people that are there and it's not just children who obviously aren't the most dependable witnesses but you know parents are there it's during drop-off it's during a science fair so i don't know where in the school someone could have taken him out without rising suspicion except for his parent or a school employee right i feel like it would have looked too suspicious unless the timing was perfect unless he was sort of grabbed and hidden somewhere where people weren't like in a vacant room or a closet or something, and then left the premises once classes began. That would explain why nobody saw him leave. That could be... Because the hallways are clear at that point. Right, with no cameras. I think back to when you and I were in high school and we didn't want to go to the pep rally because we lacked (laughs) pep. Um, We would go probably in a bathroom or something and wait for the hallways to clear for everyone to go. And then we would quietly leave the school (laughs) once the hallways were clear so i think if someone did abduct him from the school that was a stranger that's how it was done i think if terry just walked out with him or or a professional of the school that it wouldn't be unusual to see him walking alone with a student i think people could have seen that and just not remembered it but i think obviously if it was a stranger or someone that that the parents didn't see regularly that would have raised an alarm for any parent and they probably would have thought about it correct so it's possible it's possible but what do we believe is more probable i obviously think it's more probable that terry horman was involved based on her suspicious behavior after the fact but it does create another alternative to consider but, but think about what a kidnapper's usual mo is when do you have you ever heard of an abductor kidnapping a child in school no during drop-off, I just feel like there's way too many risks involved for that person. There are so many better sneaky ways to successfully <laughs> kidnap someone 
where there are no witnesses, that person is choosing to have a lot of potential witnesses. So it could be a huge risk taker, but I just don't think that's in the profile of a random abductor. I think that you're right about that. They'd be spending a lot of time at the crime scene, you know, grabbing him and waiting for everything to clear. I just think it's a huge risk. There's why, why wouldn't he just pick someone up at the school bus? I mean, <laughs> pick or someone wait up until at the bus they were stop. walking home or wait something. Until they're walking home. There's there were a lot better ways to do that that I think would be characteristic of a random abductor. But it's not impossible. I just don't think I think it would be highly unusual for that kind of offender. Yeah. So theory number three, which I think is the least likely, is that Chiron is injured or lost. That he just wandered off and he just somehow left met, school. Yeah, somehow met harm. But so he's seven years old. Is that like a common thing for seven year olds to do? Like skip out on school, just go for a walk? I don't think that it was in Chiron's behavior. No. I think for a much younger child, I think wandering is more typical. I'm not I'm not a child development expert by any means, but just from my experience with children of different ages children who are just learning to walk sometimes wander off and i feel like that goes on up until first grade Mm -hmm. and then you're not skipping school until you're like i don't know maybe a freshman in high school that's like when you'll start to wander off again but for like a different reason right i mean seven-year-olds can be spacey but i think at that point there you can go to the bathroom by yourself you can ask the teacher can i go to the bathroom you go you're more trusted to come back and not wander off because you're at a higher level of functioning right you can have structure and be more focused and directive yeah and he wasn't even in class to ask to go to the bathroom he was marked absent from even the first class right so i think it's possible i just don't think it's necessarily characteristic of a child that age and it doesn't align with past behavior so it's sort of like theory number two both are possible but both don't really align one with the typical profile of a random kidnapper and the other doesn't really align with the profile of a seven-year-old in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Like, you know how people say sometimes like when somebody's missing, they say that like, what if they hit their head and they have amnesia and they went to start a a new life? You know, like what if, what if he fell and hit his head and just wandered off? Is Well, with a seven-year-old, he wouldn't have been able to start a new life. um, True. Yeah. (laughs) But but it's, yeah, he could have, he could have wandered off and gotten lost. I don't know what the terrain is like near Skyline Elementary School. I don't know if there are wooded areas or anywhere that he could have just lost his bearings or been in the cover away from the roads, away from, from people that could have potentially seen a young child wandering around. Because that's another thing. Yeah. If he wandered off, it would raise alarms for most people during that busy time of day. That's rush hour. Um, and it's like a big city it's a big city so he's walking on the sidewalk by himself this adorable little seven-year-old with no supervision and no one remembers that or thinks to stop or at least call for help yeah unfortunately like there seems to be a shortage of witnesses in this case like it kind of seemed like he was able to just disappear without a trace like maybe there was a suspicious person outside of the school but nobody saw him leave the school so it's just a lot of frustrating gaps there yeah, and I think since then, you know, schools have become a lot more secure. Oh, yeah. Yes, they have. <laughs> they have, you know, guards at the door. Doors are locked at a certain... Like, yeah, you need, when, to, you need to use intercom to get in. And you need an ID. Everywhere. Yeah. It's, it, this wouldn't have happened today, which mm-hmm. is really hard to think about. Mm-hmm. So Chiron has been missing for over nine years. What do we really think happened? What is 
your theory, Chloe, of what happened to him? Based on the information that we have, no theory fully is satisfying and fully makes sense to me. Um, you know, theory number one, Terry. Theory number two, random abductor. Theory number three, wandered off. I, I think none of them satisfy me, but I think especially two and three, I feel like just they don't add up. They don't, they're not consistent with what someone would do um, in that position. It's inexplicable to think that a parent or a step parent would harm their child. So it's kind of crazy that I'm saying that I think that's more likely than a child wandering off. But her behavior during and following and before, yeah, and before her history is not great. Her behavior after went, her stories have been inconsistent and she can't stay out of trouble. And that was the person who was responsible for his care that day. And that's all we have. So clearly it's not enough to go to trial and for her to um, potentially seek consequences for. There's just not enough there. But I think with everything that we have, that's what adds up. That's what makes the most sense. So I think that the answer to this puzzle probably lies with people close to Terry. You know, people that may have helped her, like her friend possibly who left work that day. I think that it's whoever hopefully decides to come forward one day with information that this case will ever be solved. Because yeah, this it's- has been the biggest search in the state of Oregon's history. And there's a huge reward and there's nothing. Yeah, and it's... According to the according to that one account, she did have a friend help her. So that's one person that could have additional information. It's possible that she's the only one who knows what happened because she didn't involve anyone else. And that's possible too. But I think kind of something to consider is if she is the person that harmed Kyron, it must have been on purpose because yeah, planned. You know, why would you take him to school? If you're, if it, I, I just can't see her taking him to school for the science fair leaving school like you know skipping school with him letting him miss class and then him dying accidentally and her covering it up i feel like her taking him from school that day if that is what happened shows an intent for him to have you know to face harm yeah why why would what are the chances that you do something so unusual as to take your kid out of school after bringing him already that day and taking pictures of him that day only for him to die accidentally yeah, it seems like the picture thing was a way for her to sort of have an alibi, I guess. Like, oh, I did bring him to school. Right, and it's not unusual to take pictures of your kid, and that was a cute picture. Yeah. But it's just, the the, the picture is the only thing that shows that he was in school that day. I mean, she, the body hasn't been found, so whoever res- is responsible either got lucky or did a good job concealing this crime. Yeah, and if he is alive, he would be 16 today. And if anybody knows anything, any kind of information at all, you can either call 911 or call 503-261-2847.